let me begin. So uh, Mary Carr, in her introduction to uh, T.S. Eliot's poems, had said this, uh, Theories are fine, but unfueled by feeling, they remain gaseously theoretical. Few human beings can run very long on the fumes of an ideal. I begin each morning fairly intent on seizing the day and often abandon that wisdom with the first snapped shoelace. So there's, uh, I want to look at the issue of self-righteousness. And, uh, but self-righteousness is sort of difficult to talk about. Uh, it, there's sort of uh, vague or an, an improper sort of popular usage that in the day. Um, there's a recent headline with, uh, about Chris Martin and his wife, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow is on this sort of no carbs for kids campaign in the UK. Uh, and it's uh, upsetting quite a few people. Uh, I can't imagine why. Um, but, uh, but the headline was that uh, Chris uh, tells her she's too self-righteous sometimes and that she needs to think uh, before she starts preaching. Uh, the quote goes on to say, but he's the same. It's like they're out to save the world. Um, or when uh, Margaret Thatcher, at her recent death, the independent newspaper wrote, uh, about her, uh, somewhat negatively, that to a very large minority of Britons, if not the majority, she was an increasingly unappealing embodiment of unfeeling middle-class self-righteousness. Uh, here, self-righteousness has to do more to do with, uh, as the word implies, uh, that you yourself are right or being correct. Uh, but that actually has very little to do, um, only marginally to do, with what the, it's actually how it's used in the Bible. And so when we talk about self-righteousness, these are sort of what we, what we might mean, um, or we just don't know what it means. Usually, often it's sort of a, a word we throw at people who we don't like. Um, they're self-righteous. So it's the purpose of this breakout session to examine the issue of self-righteousness uh, by reading uh, Luke, 19, Luke 18, 9 to 14, uh, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and T.S. Eliot's play, The Elder Statesman. Uh, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector is very much a treatise on self-righteousness. Uh, the parable begins by saying, he told them this parable to some who were confident in themselves that they were righteous. Um, and uh, this is in terms of... Uh, sort of interpretive theory about parables, uh, how a parable is framed, how a story is framed, tells you how to interpret it. Uh, so Luke tells you, he, he gives the story, and he says, uh, right at the very beginning, this is how you should interpret this parable. It has to do with the issue of self-righteousness, to those who are self-righteous. And so uh, this is sort of what it's about. And the hope is that in uh, reading these two texts together, uh, might put feeling into the issue of self-righteousness and perhaps give a wisdom which persists beyond the first snapped shoelace. These two texts bear a strong similarity to one another and this comparative reading will mutually illuminate both the parable and the play as each interprets the other. I might even uh, say that the parable needs the play if one is to fully understand what the parable has to offer. So before we begin, uh, I'm going to read the parable, and then I'll give a brief uh, summary of the play. So uh, Luke 18, 9 to 14. Uh, he also told this parable to some who were confident in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. 
Jesus said, Two men went up to, into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all, of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who, ex- who humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, so that's the parable. The play, uh, T.S. Eliot's Elder Statesman, is the last of his plays. He wrote several. Uh, it's the last he wrote in, in sort of old age, in the late 50s. It's a play mostly about a, su- a mostly successful politician named Lord Claverton, uh, who has been, and he's been sort of recently pushed into retirement. He's a very sort of esteemed man. Think uh, Al Gore is a great sort of comparison. Uh, He's had some mild success, but he didn't sort of go, he didn't go all the way. Um, and upon entering the sort of an elderly care facility, uh, we are informed sort of tongue-in-cheek that this is for the sake of his health, uh, Claverton is confronted by two individuals from his past who have come to remind him of his past self and uh, from college. Uh, and specifically two events. One, he was engaged to a woman uh, and he, uh, his father found out about it and uh, made sure that this improper uh, betrothal uh, wouldn't happen. And it, it's, sort of, it's sort of like today, but it's, not, it's worse. Uh, when you are engaged to someone uh, and you break it off, it's uh, both emo- emotionally painful, but more specifically, you're uh, liable to the law and the tabloids have it and all of those sorts of things. You can be sued for, for breaking uh, an engagement. Uh, so... So that's the first of his two things. The second is he was uh, driving in a car late at night, and he ran over someone with his car and, uh, and kept driving. Uh, as it turns out, he didn't do anything wrong, or, he, well, uh, the man was already dead. <laughs> uh, and the, the dead man, even though he ran over him in the car, someone else behind him ran over him again, and they stopped. Um, but... Uh, it's, it's sort of to his horror that he never ter- stopped. He never stopped his car. He didn't do anything, but the very thing that he didn't do, stop, is uh, what is so shameful. So these two events, two people sort of come back to remind him of this past self. And the play is all about the conflict between Lord Claverton and who he was, Dick Ferry, in college. And these two comp- competing identities, the one he has created for himself and uh, this other real self which he's tried to hide. So, uh, why such a uh, comparison? Because if I'm honest, it's kind of a ridiculous comparison. Uh, Eliot was, uh, you know, an American in the 20th century. Uh, the, Jesus lived 2,000 years ago uh, and has very little to do with uh, sort of uh, on the surface with T.S. Eliot. Uh, they're quite different. So why this ridiculous comparison? Well, one, the parable uh, features two characters, uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Both approach God in prayer. The Pharisee comes to God in thanksgiving for his perceived virtues and achievements. 
comparatively superior to others around him, while the tax collector approaches God in humility, confessing his sin and petitioning God for forgiveness. The play does not feature, uh, Elder Statesman, does not feature two characters, does not feature one character, uh, two characters, but one, uh, an esteemed politician who's been pushed into retirement, the son of a rich man, an uh, Oxford grad, uh, and uh, so, and it's, uh, he's gone into parliament, he's had some uh, really uh, high success, and he's been a chairman of uh, several companies. And in many ways, Lord Claverton bears a strong resemblance to the Pharisee. Uh, he became Lord, which is a, a fancy title in England they give, they give to people, uh, and he, uh, which allowed Claverton to sort of hold his own against his wife's very um, uh, well-to-do family, his very sort of esteemed family. And even it's said that he lords that title over his family, that he sort of now made it and he's better than the rest of his family. Uh, also, his, uh, his daughter reports that uh, when sort of hearing rumors of this guilty past had this to say, uh, that his, her father was, quote, the most scrupulous, the most austere, it's quite impossible, father with a guilty secret in his past. So like the Pharisee, Claverton is, extreme, is supremely worried about how others, how he will appear to other people, and the recognition he receives from them. He says, actually, in sort of reflectiveness, he says, my obituary, who, who worries about their obituary, but uh, self-righteous people, uh, if I had died in harness, would have occupied a column and a half with an insert, a portrait taken 20 years ago. In five years' time, it will be half of that. In 10 years' time, a paragraph. So, uh, in comparison to the short parable, the longer play affords a more detailed, dramatic portrayal of a self-righteous person, giving insights into his inner life and mind, details into his past, hints at his motivations, fears, desires, and hopes. In contrast to the somewhat flat depiction of the Pharisee, Lord Claverton could easily be someone we know. Claverton could easily be ourselves. And perhaps more importantly, the play, by focusing on one man and his internal transformation, shows how a Pharisee may become a tax collector. While the parable compares these two figures as unrelated protagonists and antagonists, uh, Claverton begins as a Pharisee, but by the end of the play has become a tax collector. Likewise, the pairing of the parable and the play affords new uh, possibilities for understanding the play, and it works both ways. If the play is concerned primarily with the horizontal relationship between Claverton, his past, and his family, the parable is concerned with the vertical relationship between God and man. Uh, this is not to suggest that Eliot is somehow uh, uh, some, had this parable in mind when he wrote the play. I'm not trying to say these are directly connected. Uh, Eliot himself admits that he, had, that he used the Greek play uh, Oedipus at Colonus was his sort of jumping-off point. Uh, but rather, it's more mild, only that these two texts might be united in their concerns and their subject matter. Uh, so first, uh, long prelude uh, to my first point, the self-righteous Pharisee. Luke says that this is, uh, talks about how man was confident that in himself that he was righteous. 
he says, quote, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. This is a man who presents himself in, uh, by virtue of his uh, virtues, by uh, virtue of how much better he is than everyone else. He compares himself to anyone and everyone around them. Uh, you know these kinds of people. You might yourself be these kinds of people. How good you're doing is everything to do with uh, how you compare to everyone around you. Are you doing uh, comparatively better or worse than, than uh, everyone around you? Uh, your brothers, your sisters, your roommates, uh, your, you know, the people you went to college with, you find... Uh, there's, oh, uh, oh, shoot. Uh, I always forget the name of this. House of Cards. Uh, there's this wonderful scene where he goes back and to college, and it was panned by the reviewers because what are we going? What are we doing going back to college? But it was a wonderful sort of snapshot of seeing how these four, these four, four people who were all together branched off in life in all these different directions. Uh, and it's so easy to sort of do that, look at back at our past and where I am now in comparison to everyone else who had the sort of same beginnings as myself. And comparing. Uh, but looking at Claverton in the play, we acutely realize that, uh, that this is a posturing, that this uh, is a sham. It's rather uh, this sort of presenting of myself is an act that I put on rather than anything close to reality. Uh, Claverton has astutely cultivated a uh, persona, a costume. As one character astutely remarks to Claverton, you wanted to pose as a man of the world, and now you're posing as what? I presume as an elder statesman? And the difference between being an elder statesman and posing successfully as an elder statesman is practically negligible. And you look the part. Whatever part you've played, I must say you've always looked it. There'll always be some sort of, some part of you right to the end. You're still, uh, you'll still be playing a, a part in your obituary whoever writes it. So we learn from the parable that self-righteousness then has something to do with asserting one's virtues and boasting about yourself and comparing yourself. But we also learn from the play that self-righteousness is intricately tied to the concept of identity and any attempt to assert for yourself an identity. Uh, you... Uh, run into these kinds of people who are really really care about job titles. Um, I am uh, the Reverend Todd Brewer. Uh, I hope to be the Reverend Dr. Todd Brewer. Uh, or uh, I am a barrister. Or I am, sorry, the English thing. Uh, I am a, a lawyer. I am uh, any number of, uh, of things. Um, or the office, uh, Dwight Schrute. I am the assistant regional manager, uh, rather than the assistant to the regional manager. Um, or uh, no title at all. Uh, you know, you go to your, your, your a heart surgeon, just call me Steve. Uh, really? Um, there's a character in this play called uh, Mrs. Pidgett, and uh, she, um, she actually is, is, a, is, a, is a person who doesn't care about titles. Uh, to some, she's Mrs. Pidgett which has a comfort of being uh, familiar. To others, she is Nurse Pidgett, and she doesn't care which one or the other. 
You find this also in people and their sort of identities and reactionary conversion stories uh, and sort of the creation of a new, quote, Christian identity. Um, uh, you, you related to these people. Uh, they, they tell their story as if uh, who they were has absolutely no rela- relation to the, who they are now. Um, I was in the Navy, and I uh, was a trickster, and I uh, drank wildly, and I, uh, you know, and when you talk, see them now, um, they're still trying to break the rules in very subtle ways. They'll speed, or um, if it's talking on cell phone, they're you know, not allowed, uh, they, they will. Um, they find small ways. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a way of conceiving yourself, which has a dramatic break, with no, absolutely no continuity. Uh, perhaps most interestingly, we also learn from the play that such an identity isn't really a thing, as if you can grasp hold of it. It's simply a mirage. It's a part you've chosen to play in a theater you have created for yourself. Often revealed when uh, some of these, these sort of things, when you're around family or when you hang out with old friends, uh, you sort of present yourself and they're, they're, they sort of uh, laugh at who you are. Um, I uh, was at a wedding recently and I, I, I'm living in England right now. I'm an American. I'm living in England. And uh, the, uh, I've subtly taken on British customs um, unbeknownst to myself and to my extreme horror. And um, I was at this wedding and, and my friends laughed at me when I sort of took the napkin and I ruffled it and I placed it in my lap. Or when I would be in a group and I wouldn't introduce myself to someone. Uh, introducing yourselves is kind of one of those faux pas. You stand there and wait to be introduced. Um, but they all laughed at me. I'm like, oh, well, that's, that's really sad. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, so that's the self-righteous Pharisee. But what of the tax collector? Uh, Luke's, Jesus' parable in Luke says this. Uh, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We often think of this as being humility, um, but humility is often um, too pious a word. Um, I, I don't really know what humble means in sort of when I wake up in the morning or when I can't go to sleep at night. Uh, humility. So... Uh, to sort of elaborate this, we'll look at the play. Um, and the play, uh, humility, has everything to do with honesty. It has everything to do with self uh, trans- transparency. It has everything to do with uh, g- giving up of the self-righteousness, giving up of the play. Uh, it, it ha- Claverton had this to say about himself. Uh, and when he's sort of getting better. He said, I see myself emerging from my spectral existence into something like reality. It's an honesty. It is a giving up of the illusion. So stop playing the part you've chosen and see yourself for what you really are. Uh, warts and uh, misgivings and uh, extreme uh, personality disorder and all. It's to stop running, to excel, or to exhale, sorry, and acquiesce uh, to what life has to offer. So, uh, but the, the big question for me and, uh, is, how does a Pharisee become a tax collector? Uh, 
the parable doesn't really seem to offer much of an indication as to how a Pharisee may become a tax collector. The two are offered as mutually exclusive alternatives. Uh, if anything, uh, becoming a tax collector is, seems to be a, simply a matter of choice or will. Uh, humble yourself and you'll be all right. And while choice is certainly part of this process, uh, it is only a part and it is probably isn't even the most decisive part. So uh, how, what can we learn from the play? What, what do we do? So for Claverton, the, uh, his, the, 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 it came in sort of three steps, three points on how, that sort of how a Pharisee becomes a tax collector. The first is a disruption. Uh, a disruption. For Claverton, his disruption came in his life came in several forms. One was uh, that of professional failure. Um, he was pushed out. Um, and in fact, they gave him an, a, such a, a, an over, a very lavish gift to make up for the fact that he was pushed out. It, they said it must be showy uh, so that there could be no hint of misdoing. Uh, and, uh, and secondly, in the form of uh, present reminder from the characters of Gomez and Mrs. Cargill, uh, the woman who he was betrothed to be married with, uh, to, and the, the fellow passenger in the car. So it's an interruption. Uh, an interruption which is in, in some way, shape, or form uh, might be related to suffering. It might be related to failure. It might be related to uh, uh, a funeral you go to of a long-lost friend. It, it could be any number of things. It could be... Uh, seeing a, a TV show and really and sympathizing with a character. Some form of interruption. Uh, Claverton had this to say about himself, um, about him and his son. Michael, his son, and I shall go to school together. We'll sit side by side at little desks and suffer the same humiliations at the, sa- at the hands of the same master. He says even further on, in becoming no one, I begin to live. It is worth uh, worthwhile dying to find out what life is. In the occasional interruptions offered by life, the false self is separated from the true self, so that uh, we can clearly see the folly for who we really are. Claverton is pushed to his absolute limit, where he had no other choice but to see himself for the shame he had for the sham he had become. Looking back at the parable then, the tax collector shows up in the temple and prays, and what he does is not simply a matter of choice or a decision. Uh, We can sort of creatively imagine in the background that something has happened to him to bring him to his knees. Ultimately then, this uh, whether one is a Pharisee or a tax collector is not up to us, but is up to God. Uh, as the old gospel hymn that Johnny Cash so wonderfully sang, uh, you can run for a long time. Uh, sooner or later, God will cut you down. So, uh, one is interruption. Point two, then, is confession. Confession. As opposed to the false mirage promoted by the Pharisee, the tax collector's honest confession of himself results in his uh, justification or peace of mind, comfort, uh, a fresh start, or an eased conscience. For Claverton, uh, 
Cleverton comes to the point where he, uh, he must do something. And rather than run, he decides to face up to who he was. And he confesses his sins to his daughter, the, the most beloved person in his entire life. He confesses to his daughter uh, everything. And he had this to say. Uh, so he makes his confession, and then he says this, I have made my confession to you, Monica. That is the first step taken toward my freedom, and perhaps the most important. I know what you think. You think that I suffer from a morbid conscience, from brooding over faults I might well have forgotten. You think I'm sickening when I'm just recovering. It's hard to make other people realize the magnitude of things that appear appear to them petty. It's hard to confess the sin that no one believes in than the crime that everyone else can appreciate. For the crime is in relation to the law, and the sin is in relation to the sinner. What has made the difference in the last five minutes is not the heinousness of my misdeeds, but the fact of my confession. Claverton's confession is, for him, the bridge between the false self, the actor who puts on the show, which is always playing the part, or trying to make an impression, and the new self, which loves freely without pretense. Uh, Francis uh, Spufford had this to say about this process. He says, The way back begins with the admission that you really are guilty of the particular bit of the human propensity to screw things up, which is making you feel like rubbish. If you don't give the weight in your chest its true name, you can't even begin. It's guilt that drags your steps. It's guilt that paints the morning black. Admitting, admitting there's some black in the mixture of my psyche makes it matter less, and it helps me to be kind to myself. Claverton confesses to his daughter and finds that his confession is not in vain but is met with an unconditional love which is expressed as, ap- as forgiveness and absolution. This brings to point three. Um, how can one confess? Um, is confession really a matter just of courage? Is it a mustering up of sort of the willpower to do it, um, as the parable might indicate? Uh, or is there something else going on? When, uh, and, when talking about his... Uh, relationship with his deceased wife, we get a, a, a bit of a, a clue as to what's going on here, as to how one can confess. Uh, and he says uh, about his inability to confess to her his failures, uh, Claverton asks sort of uh, questions. How is one's uh, heart, how, how open is one's heart when one is sure of the wrong response? How make a confession with no hope of absolution? So then looking back to the parable, the tax collector then confesses his sins and asks for mercy because he knows God to be the one who is merciful. One uh, fine echoes here of the parable of the prodigal son. God is one for whom we can drop our pretense because in the person of Jesus, God has revealed himself to be the one who forgives and does not count either our our true or false identities against us. 
as Francis Buford uh, says, um, it's a wonderful book. It's upstairs. You really should uh, give it a read. Uh, quote, I have been shown that though I may see myself in the grim optics of sorrow and self-dislike, I am being seen all the while, if I can bring myself to believe it, with a generosity wider than oceans. Putting this together then, the play suggests that there is a threefold movement between the Pharisee and the tax collector. The first is one of disruption, of loss, of uh, despair, of some, uh, something which happens to us, which knocks us out of uh, off kilter, which uh, knocks us off of the uh, inertia, which is the, the, the daily grind of life. Uh, and secondly is uh, that of confession, but particularly confession to uh, in, uh, the reception of absolution. So finally, uh, what then does the parable teach us about the play? Uh, up until this point, the talk has been somewhat one-sided, uh, looking at the ways in which the Eliot's play illuminates the Lucan parable. Uh, this is somewhat to be expected, uh, given the lengthy nature of the play. Uh, so what can be said of the play in conversation with the parable? Uh, the parable tells of the interlocking relationship between the vertical me and God, and the horizontal, uh, uh, me and my neighbor, as the latter is a reflection of the former. If the play indicates that our horizontal relationships between friends and family and myself are an end in themselves, on the way towards some self-realization, the parable gives these relationships a theological orientation saying it has to ultimately do about our relationship to God. If the parable's boasting, if the Pharisee's boasting of relative achievements were barriers that presented true self-knowledge and undermining his relationship to God, the same is true of Claverton. The efforts he made towards the keeping up of a public persona, the respected, famous politician, may be said to undermine his relationship to God. As Paul confesses in Philippians 3, uh, for Jesus' sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as refuge and refuse, refuse, and this is the key part, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. There, there's a, a causal connection here between how Paul regards his, his past, him, himself, and his relative achievements, and uh, the proportion to which he understands and uh, and can be said to be grasped by Christ. And so the parable suggests that there is no region of life which exists outside of the purview of the divine relationship. All of reality finds its telos, or ultimate significance, under the care of the God of the universe. There is always an interrelationship between our temporal existence, its cares, concerns, and the infinite, timeless God who is at work in his creation in the person of Jesus. And so, in a sense, Eliot's play portrays characters whose actions are ultimately derived and directed by God, standing under his two words of judgment and forgiving love. So, conclusion. Uh, The parable of the Pharisee and tax collector posits itself as a parable which 
uh, is primar- primarily about self-righteousness. Uh, however, the sort of ethereal foreignness of this concept and its varied and uncertain contemporary usage complicates such a discussion. Pairing the parable with Eliot's play, The Elder Statesman, has proven useful in a number of ways. The play suggests that the notion of self-righteousness is intricately tied to the concept of identity and its cultivation. The various identities that we present to others to gain recognition and ultimately love are not in any ways expression of our true identity, nor can they earn us love. Rather, they are parts we have chosen to play in the theaters we create for ourselves. Rather than a life built upon falsehood, what is required is honest confession, to stop pretending and find some measure of acceptance and ultimately forgiveness. This is not something we have to muster up for ourselves, but something which happens to us, though through some unexpected and likely painful interruption in life whereby we can see ourselves clearly. And perhaps then we can admit to God and neighbor our faults and misdeeds, our false selves and misguided search for love, and being loved and forgiven, we might begin again, not as the old actor under the weight of our sin, but as the new creation who has been freed to love. Thanks. I don't know what comes next. <laughs> we, a, Q- a few minutes and one to Yeah. Okay. Just the title of Buford's book. Buford. Buford. It could be Spufford. I could. Unapologetic. Why Christianity can still make uh, surprising emotional sense. It, it hasn't. It's been released in England, and they're creating an American version. Uh, by Harper, I think, is going to be published, published again. When they lead seminars, they tell you to just be quiet until someone asks a question. <laughs> could, you, could you just talk a little bit about this, the shape of the play? I have, I'm not familiar with it. Yeah. Um, so it begins three act play, three act play three act, yeah. um, and Act One is uh, an introduction to uh, Gomez steps onto the scene. Um, he's just retired. Uh, his his schedule book is empty for the first time in his life, uh, and he's he has nothing to do except, and he's about to be sent away to this retirement home, which is sort of a fancy elderly care facility. Um, and his, his daughter is going with him, and, and Gomez has showed up in the scene, and he, and he sort of, act one ends with him sort of going, shoot, uh, what's going on here? Um, act two is him in, uh, and it's sort of further processing of what's going on, and the introduction of Mrs. Cargill, who further reminds him of, an, of uh, his past uh, failures. And then, uh, and act two ends, uh, with that quote about him uh, suffering the same humiliations of the master. And then Act 3 is uh, ultimately then the resolution to that um, via uh, confession and uh, absolution. Thank you. Uh, I I think it's uh, really neat uh, the uh, looking at the Pharisee 
in terms of how he can be um, reclaimed or redeemed or uh, become the tax collector, um, I guess, in the sense of being justified. And um, uh, I've never, I don't think I've ever uh, heard that before. And uh, it's, uh, it's very hopeful. I don't know if you can talk about how you, you know, what, what might have prompted you to um, think along those lines. Or, I don't know. You, you yeah. talk about it, I guess. I mean, the initial thought was noticing a formal similarity to, to those, and really, uh, I'm, uh, I think I'm a Pharisee, uh, and I, I know many people who might also uh, claim that. Um, I first read Eliot's book, uh, play, sorry, I've read the book form, uh, when I was, I just finished seminary, and I was looking for jobs. Um, and I thought I was 25, uh, thought I was a hotshot, um, you know, because when you're young and ordained, there's, there's not many of you, um, and you think sort of, oh, great, I'll find this great job, and I interviewed a number of places, and I couldn't find anything. I was always uh, second um, in the uh, process, so it was, so when I'm reading this book was sort of me coming into, uh, uh, coming into confrontation with this ideal of myself that I had. Uh, being sort of young, ordained, and uh, supposedly successful, and destined for good things, um, and not not finding it. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, and so that's sort of where it began. If you want to look at it, but in the Lucan play, a parable, it's there. Um, in the, that last line, though you have to sort of flesh it out a bit, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Um, you can take those as two statements. Uh, which are true, or you can see them as an interlocking process whereby the exalted are humbled, and when being humbled, they're then exalted, um, which is how I would like uh, to, to think of it. So. Are there any other particular favorite plays by T.S. Eliot that you would recommend? Family Reunion uh, is uh, okay. It, um, but the cocktail party, is, I think, is best. Um, it's really good. And Elliot him, will, himself, I read an interview, said that uh, when, I, when I did the early on, the murder of the cathedral was me just sort of doing a form. And I, it, there wasn't as many big ideas behind it. Um, and then it, he did, for them there, he did family reunion. And he realized, uh, in retrospect, that he was too tied to his Greek original. He always is trying to do look Greek, Greek plays, re repackaging them. Um, and it came out in some very mixed concepts. And then he, he said, family, uh, the cocktail party is, he thought, was excellent. And I would uh, second that. Yeah. I just wonder, wasn't he a Nazi synthesizer? I could be wrong. But if that were the case, I think he had some issues with, with the Jews, but I don't think he was Nazi. Oh, okay. I, I it's a little anti-Semitic. People thought of him as such. What I was thinking is maybe he's talking about himself, too, the ideal and, yeah. you know, later in the redemption and so on. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I have no clue about his own um, relationship to um, the, drum, the, drum, the events of World War II. Right. Um, but it could certainly be said that... Uh, He's, that there's a lot of, of himself in, in this play. Um, 
because um, he's old. Um, it's his last. Um, and in the in the uh, preface, uh, the dedication he dedicated it to his wife, um, who he always had a, 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 a he had a stormy relationship with. Um, and um, he says in the beginning that they're. Uh, they, the words mean what they mean, but to you, my dear, they mean they have they have a deeper meaning. Um, so he's very much sort of self-reflecting and, and working out uh, his own uh, and personal issues. Anything else? Uh, so uh, the possibly. The self-awareness is, is an important part of the process, becoming self-aware, mm -hmm. and then probably the step one would be um, very important in that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, if, can I take that as a jumping off point? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, I, I think... I can't really do a question. Yeah. <laughs> one, one, of the, one of the things um, that I think I uh, hold to dearly is the idea that statements about God have uh, everything to do about us. And they, they also reflect backwards statements about us. Um, that God is all-powerful implies that we are powerless. Um, that God has saved us it, we, means that we are in need of salvation. Um, and, uh, yeah, and so for, for me, the task of theology is, is looking at the, that interrelationship between God and man and how those two um, ultimately relate uh, in uh, the person of Jesus. <laughs>